Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our study in the book of Esther, taking a look at answering the question, where is God? So if you've got a Bible, you can take it out and turn with me to Esther chapter 2, or you can turn in the, the Bibles that we've provided to page 354, on page 354, and we're going to begin looking at Esther uh, chapter 2, the, the second part of that. So well, let's dive into that in just a minute. I'll let you get to that, that page. Um, but today, as we um, begin taking a look uh, or continue taking a look at the question, where is God? I wanted us to look at one of the questions we have or when we go through certain circumstances and situations in life where we begin to ask the question, where is God in this? It's usually when we see the the conflict between good and evil. When good and evil come in conflict together, we can see the good are asking the question, where is God? And the, the, the evil are asking question, well, or they're answering the question by saying, well, I am God. And so we see these things coming together in, in challenges um, in life. And, you know, in life we see this happening over and over and over again. Like the question is, why do, why do the wicked prosper? Why do people that are, that are not doing it the right way, doing it the good way, why do sometimes they have an opportunity to advance quicker than those that are steady and doing it the right way? I remember in, in life when I had an opportunity to work at Burger King back in high school. I was a burger slinger, and I was very faithful. I loved my job, and I remember um, working the Burger King machine, like the machine that made the burgers. Now, if you don't, they don't actually have people in the back flipping the burgers. What they do at Burger King is they have this big cooler in front of you with the different size patties, and what you do, and what I did for eight hours, was I would take the patties out, and, and I'd put the, the bigger ones on this side and the smaller ones on this side, and you just go like this, and you're doing this all day long. And it's going through this, this broiler, and it's broiling, and then the person on the other side's grabbing them and making the sandwiches and all that. And then on the top level, you're taking the buns and you're sending the buns in on top so that they get a chance to be toasted. And so I would do that for eight hours. Now, I'm glad I got a college education and I'm glad I no longer have to do that. But I was very, 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 very faithful. I would I always sign in or check in a couple minutes early and I'd punch out a couple minutes late. I was always there and I was very, very faithful to that cook the cooler into my machine and I cared for that machine when it came time to clean that machine I was very meticulous but there was this one guy that came in he was hired about two weeks after me and his name was Tom now Tom and I didn't get along very much um, because Tom was one of those guys where you could tell he was in it to win it. He came in, and he's like, well, you know what? In three months from now, I'm going to be running this place. And so he came in, and, and I was actually had an opportunity to train him on the, the machines, and I was showing him how to do it diligently. He's like, forget that, move out of the way. And he started just like stacking them all up and running like all these burgers through. So production went up like 800% when he took over, and I'm like... Okay, And so they saw that he had better production capabilities, so they moved him from the broiler to the boards, and the boards is where you make the sandwiches. And like a couple weeks later, they moved him to the front line, and then a couple weeks later, he was on drive-thru. Now, in the, the fast food world, the place you want to be is drive-thru. Like, you don't want to be back there, like, doing the buns and all that other stuff. You want to be out there, like, talking with people and doing things and getting a chance to run around. Well, Tom was, like, on drive through within three weeks of starting the job. And I'm still back there doing my thing. Doing, and I became very, very frustrated. I became very, very angry. And I thought to myself over and over again, I'm, the, I'm here doing these things. I want to be over there, too, just like he, just like Tom's over there. But for some reason, I'm here. And so I remained faithful and come to find out later on Within six months, Tom was fired. And the reason that Tom was fired was because he was stealing money from the cash register. 
So we see that sometimes in life it works out. Sometimes in life we see that a, a seemingly that the evil or the wicked, well, Tom wasn't really wicked, but he came in and ended up doing some things that were pretty evil. Um, he was promoted a lot quicker than I was. And sometimes that causes a lot of frustration. We ask ourselves the question, God, where are you in this? Why is it that I'm trying to be faithful to you day in and day out, and I don't seem to see the blessings that some other people, that don't even care about you, why are they receiving greater blessings? And so I want us to look to the book of Esther as we begin to kind of see this playing itself out, as we see the good and the evil, or we see the faithful and the faithless coming together, and how we see the rise and fall of both of them in this passage. And as we've been looking at the book of Esther, we see that the hand of God is at work, but it's at work in a different way than it is in some of the other books in the Bible. In the book of Esther, we don't see God's name even being mentioned, but we know we can tell by looking at it from... Um, thousands of years later, we can look in and we can see that God's hand was very, very active. There are times in Scripture where, where God shows up and he's very, very visible, where he basically shows up in, in a, a fire or he shows up with his voice or he shows up through strong other leaders. And so we see the hand of God in other ways. In the book of Esther, we see it kind of different. It's almost as though um, God is working from behind the curtain. And so what we've been trying to do through this passage or through this book is we've been looking at trying to identify the hand of God so that we may, when God's hand doesn't seem like it's evident in our life, so that we may place our faith in him. So the question for today is where's God in the midst of good and evil? Let's look in Esther chapter 2 and we're going to pick up in verse 19 and we're going to read through chapter 3. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told the queen, told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found out to be so, the men were hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, a Haggite, the son of Hamethada, and advanced him and set him as a throne above all of the officials who were in who were with him. And the king's servants were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commands? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told him in, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he had disdain to lay his hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hazarus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth month of the king of Hazarus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it in the month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. 
Then Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may be put into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Haggite, the son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you that the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, to the governors over all the provinces and the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every town in its own language. And it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and it was sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Father, we are thankful today for the fact that you are at work in our lives, even though sometimes we cannot see your hand. We trust that it is always there. And Father, we are aware today that there are some that have come into this place um, really needing to see your hand, really desiring to see your hand at work in their lives. And Father, we pray today that they would see you in a new way. Father, there may be some here today that don't even know that you have been at work in their lives. And so, Father, I pray today that they would come to better understanding that you love and care and are providing for them. But Father, today, may your word speak into our lives. May it encourage us. May it challenge us. May it change us for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we begin to take a look at this passage, I want us to, to really begin to push up and against two different characters from this biblical account. The first one I want us to take a look at is Mordecai. And we're going to see from Mordecai what the walk of the faithful looked like, what the walk of the faithful looks like. And then we're going to, to look at Haman, and we're going to look at the rise of the wicked. So we're going to take a look at the faithful versus the faithless, and we're going to see how their lives are different and how um, their lives intercede and interject with one another. So to begin, let's begin by taking a look at um, the life of Mordecai. Now, Mordecai was a man of faith. We see throughout this passage that he was steady, he was faithful, and he was continually progressing towards, um, towards the Lord. The Lord had been faithful in his life, and the Lord had been there for him. And we see last week, as we begun taking a look at um, this passage, we saw uh, Esther come on the scene, and we see Mordecai come on the scene. And we see from the very beginning that they are designed, or they are designated as Jews. And so Mordecai was a man that grew up in a Jewish home. He was one that had embraced 
the tenets of his faith. He was one that um, his great-grandfather was uh, a part of the exile when God was showing his judgment on his people and his loving correction and uh, allowed his people to be exiled into Babylon. Uh, We see that uh, Mordecai's family was a part of that. And we see that... um, now that Mordecai now is living in as a exile um, in underneath the Persian uh, Empire, we see now that he has learned from his parents what it means to be a Jew, uh, what it means to be a follower of God, what it means to have um, this close-knit faith in this God. And so his faith was passed on down to Mordecai. And Mordecai understood the law. He understood what it meant to walk in fear of the Lord. And he understood what it meant to trust in the Lord. And we see that God had provided opportunities for him to take a different path, maybe than he would have chosen for himself, in that his, um, he's now taking on the responsibility of raising Esther, who was his cousin. And the Lord provided this opportunity. And we see that... that he was, Mordecai was faithful in that. Mordecai didn't just shirk that responsibility. Instead, he brought Esther into his home and into his life and loved her as though she were his own daughter, showed her the ways to walk in the Lord. And we see that God provided an opportunity through time for Esther to become queen. And so now um, God used Mordecai to be a queen maker. And uh, we see now that Mordecai is still continuing to be faithful in following the Lord. His faith is growing. He's continuing to trust in the Lord. And as God allowed him to prepare Esther and protect her, he, we see here in chapter 2 that he's still keeping dibs on Esther. He still wants to know how she's doing. He loves her. And we see that she is, he is here now constantly checking in on her, going to the king's gate to kind of hear how things are going. And what we see through, through Mordecai's life is the reality of the truth that we know in other parts of Scripture that says that if you're faithful in the little things, I will give you greater things. If we're faithful in the little things, if we're faithful in the small things that God gives us, the small challenges, the small opportunities, then the Lord will further and continue to give us more and more and more to be faithful in. And we see that this is, this is the reality of what is playing out in Mordecai's life. He was faithful in little things, and we see that the Lord is continuing to allow him to take on more and more responsibility. Another thing that we see here in this passage is that he had a, a firm understanding of that God had placed in positions over him other people in authority. He understood that King Ahasuerus was his authority, that God had brought him to allow him to have this position at this time in his life. And it wasn't as though he was shaking his fist at King Ahasuerus. Instead, he understood that being a subject of the Persian Empire meant that he had to bring about honor to the king. And so we see that that, um, Mordecai is faithful in that. For as he goes to the city gate, and on this day he hears these two guys plotting to, to assassinate the king, we see that he's faced with a choice. Mordecai fully has the choice to either um, to make this known to the king through the queen Esther, or he can keep his mouth shut. But we also understand that it's God's hand at work in this passage in this time is because God allowed both of these guys and Mordecai to be together at that place at that time so that Mordecai could hear this plan. It reminds me of, of Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24 where the word of God reminds us that a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his ways? 
So if we believe that God is interceding and God is interacting in our lives, we have to believe that every one of our steps, God knows and God has ordained and God knows exactly where we'll be exactly at specific times. Even though we may not understand it, God is at work. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So even though we may have in our minds our, our daily schedules all planned out, God is in and among and above those daily plans. As we may be going from meeting to meeting, from meeting to meeting, we have to understand that God is in those plans and God has purpose for those plans. But we see here as, as Mordecai is faced with a choice, whether to honor the king or to allow it to go so that the king may be taken out as, as an enemy of, of his people, we see that he chooses to be faithful. And he chooses to make this known to the king through the queen. So we see that he understands the need to honor the king, but we also see that he refuses to deny the tenets of his faith. Later on, as we see Haman coming in, in on the scene, and we see that he says he's beginning to set up uh, this idea that, that all the people under Haman need to come to the place of worshiping him, where they come and they not only uh, bow before him, but they pay him homage. And basically what uh, Haman was asking the people to do was to come to the place of where they said, my life is in your hands, Haman, and I trust you that you will care for me and you will be over me and that you will be the one that I give my life to. So basically, that's what, they were, what he was asking Mordecai to do. And Mordecai understood the word of God enough to say that we should have no other gods before him, that we should bow down to no one except for God himself. And so Mordecai refused to worship this person of the king. Even though in the world that Mordecai was living in, it seemed as though all the other Jews were giving in. For it says there that everyone else was doing it except for Mordecai. So even the other Jews had, had succumbed and come to the place of worshiping this earthly man. Mordecai says, I will not. And so we see that Mordecai has continuing to be, continued to be more and more faithful. And we see that even at the end of, of chapter 2... We see that after he had made known this plot, it seems as though Mordecai's good acts begin to go unnoticed. For all that was taking place was the end of, of verse 23, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. And then it's almost as though that story is shut and we never may hear about that again, that Mordecai wasn't in some ways rejoiced in or, or somehow um, made known of all the great things that he did, that he spared the life of the king. His faithfulness seems to be going unnoticed. And many people, if, if they were to step in and be in Mordecai's place, many of us would go to the point of saying, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't I just save the king? Like, what's, what's in it for me? Like, I just did this, so shouldn't I have something that's a beneficial for my own self? And it kind of reminds me of the movie The Field of Dreams. Now, have you guys ever seen the movie The Field of Dreams? Like, in the movie The Field of Dreams, we have uh, this encounter... Is it going to be the video or just the video? Watch this just for a moment. See how it relates to um, this sermon. 
Wait a second. Wait a second. Why him? I built this field. You wouldn't be here Great. if it weren't for me. That's well, it. you wouldn't be here I'm for what? You have a family. I know, but I want to know what's out there. I want to see it. But you're not invited. Not invited? What do you mean, I'm not invited? That's my corn out there. You guys are guests in my corn. Right. No, wait. I have done everything I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it. And I haven't once asked what's in it for me. What are you saying, Ray? I'm saying, what's in it for me? Is that why you did this? For you? I think you better stay here, Ray. Why? Ray, there was a reason they chose me, just as there was a reason they chose you in this field. Why? I gave an interview. What, what interview? What are you talking about? All right. So we see that uh, in, this path, or in this movie, Ray had gone through all the steps and was wondering at the end of it, why? Why is all this happening? And what's in it for me? I, I, I didn't do it all just for what was to benefit me, but he was showing faithfulness. And this movie is crazy because he like plows underneath his corn and begins building this, this cornfield because he heard this voice that said, if you build it, they will come. And so he had this vision of this, this cornfield. And so um, we see that sometimes that that's the, the heart, the bent of our heartness towards when we start doing the things of the Lord. We, we get confused sometimes. We want to ask that question. Well, why? I don't understand. I'm doing all the things that you want me to do, and yet I don't see the bigger picture. But what I want us to know today, and we won't see this fully in, in this passage, but we will in weeks to come, is that Mordecai's faithfulness was noticed by God. And it's always in God's timing and in God's ways that he will bring about his plans. And so the truth that is in Mordecai's Mordecai's life is true in our lives as well. Our faithfulness to the Lord, our choosing to not put our faith in ourselves, but placing our faith in God will not go unnoticed by God, but in his timing and in his way, he will bring about the fulfillment of our faithfulness. And so that's one message, and that's one way we see the walk of faith. The second thing I want us to see is the the rise of the wicked, but also the walk of the wicked or the faithless. And so we see the beginning of chapter 3. We see the... the, the protagonist of this biblical account comes on the scene. We see Haman has, has just come on the scene. And we see in, in chapter 3 that he is given an identifier of who he was. That he was Haman the, the Agagite. And we see that just as Mordecai was introduced as a Jew, we see Haman was an Agagite. Now what's reality of all this is, is there's great tension between, in the past, there's great tension between the Israelites and the Amalekites. The Israelites and the Amalekites had many, many run-ins in the Old Testament. While in the wilderness, the Amalekites come on the scene and God allows his people to overthrow the Amalekites and also has an opportunity to prophesy that Israel will always be greater than the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites also come on back on the scene during the, the, the reign of King Saul. King Saul was, uh, had a message from the Lord, and the Lord said to King Saul that you are going to 
defeat the Amalekites, and you are going to overthrow Agag, who is the king of the Amalekites. Now, this is what, he, what the Lord had asked King Saul to do. He said, Saul, I want you to go, and I want you to go down there, take your people down there, and I want you to have war against the Amalekites. I will be with you, but what I want you to do specifically is I don't want you to leave any of them standing. I want you to kill all of them, mothers, daughters, old people, young people. I want you to totally and absolutely take them out. And then I want you, with your sword, I want you to kill King Agag. And Saul goes out and he partially obeys the word of the Lord. For we see in um, the Chronicles, we see that he goes out there and he fights and they don't, let, they don't kill everyone. They let some people live. And Saul has compassion on King Agag. And so instead of killing him, he, he wants to make him as a trophy unto the Lord. And so he has a better idea than what God's ideas are. And so he brings him in and says, this is the king. And then Samuel has to come on the scene and say, you have disobeyed the word of the Lord. And so Samuel has to go and kill King Agag. Agag. And so we see that there's great, now there's, there's, there's great division between the Israelites and the Amalekites. The Amalekites hate the Israelites. But the Amalekites wouldn't hate the Israelites if there weren't any more Amalekites. If they would have, if, if, if Saul would have done what God wanted him to do, then this story may not even come about. But here's the beauty of, of God. Whenever we choose to do things in our own hands and in our own strength and our own power, God and his love and his grace always provides or makes provision. And so we see that God knew on that day that Saul wasn't going to be faithful. And now it was going to come to this point when the Amalekites or the Agagites are again, once again, against the Israelites. So we can see that Haman is naturally has, because of his past, because of, of who he is, we see, and because of Mordecai, who he is, we see those two things coming in conflict. But the second thing that we notice about this is the, the rapid secession or the rapid growth or the, the rapid increase of power that Haman experiences. He has a very, very quick rise to power, and he moves through the ranks very, very quickly. Now, there are many challenges in, in, in benefits. There are benefits to a slow progression of, of leadership, as we see through Mordecai. The, cha- the, the benefits of a slow progression of taking on more and more leadership slowly, the benefits are that you get to learn each job along the way. As you are faithful little things and you get to learn how to be the fryer or the, the, the broiler guy, and then you get to move over the boards and you understand all that other stuff. Then by the time you get to like the drive through when people are coming through and they're like, hey, I'd like a, a chicken sandwich uh, with no mustard. Like if you, didn't, if you didn't walk through all of those stages, you wouldn't know that chicken sandwiches already don't come with mustard. Like so you could tell the person, hey, you know, chicken sandwiches already don't come with mustard. So that's good to know. Or you're not like trying to find out the button on the machine of saying no mustard because there's like the button that says no mustard. And so if you're doing it, you're going to frustrate everyone else. If you say chicken sandwich, no mustard, the guy back there making the sandwich is like no mustard. I don't don't understand what these what you're trying to tell me. So a rapid procession of, of leadership, sometimes you miss those steps and sometimes you can look like a fool. And we see that... Um, the other thing that we see is that the more and more you gain responsibility quickly, the quicker you're promoted, it can lead to pride. It can lead to pride and feeling as though you're yourself more responsible and more important than you really are. And also, you don't understand fully all the implications of your decisions, so you can make decisions apart from other things. And so a, rise, a quick rise in power sometimes can be 
detrimental to your own health. And so we see Haman has been promoted very, very quickly. He's come to the place of being second in command. And we see that it immediately goes to his head. For he goes out and makes this ordering that all people are to worship him. They are to bow down before him. They are to pay tribute. That he is asking people to, that he become the object of their faith. And we see that Mordecai refuses to do it. Here's the strange thing about power. People that have seemingly unlimited power and unlimited authority, when they mix that with wickedness, they no longer look for justice. What they look for is personal justification. Like, so they're no longer looking for justice of other people. They're not looking at, how can I make this world a better place? How can we be better people? No, they look inwardly and they say, how can I be made more famous of myself? How can I be more justified? How can people begin to say how great I am? And then if there's someone that's not willing to bend and say that you're great, then all of that power turns into anger and revenge. So Mordecai comes up with this idea of what he's going to do, and he's going to eradicate not only just Mordecai, but he's going to eradicate all of the Jews. Now we see that this is not something that's new in history. For there have been many, many, many that have tried throughout history to eradicate the the Jewish race or the Israelites from the world. And you know what? If I read the Bible, I I know that that never ends well. It, It never ends well, and it's never going to end well. So if you hear of someone that says, hey, let's go make war with the Jews. Let's go do something against them. It's not going to end well. We've seen that in our in our own recent history with with Hitler, and we've seen it all throughout time. Even in, in Egypt, we saw when Pharaoh tried to do it, what God did. So Haman has this plan. He's, he's got it all in control. I'm, I'm in charge. I'm the man. I've got all this power. And so what I can do is I'm going to go to the king. I'm going to tell him these things. And you know, as he goes to the king and has this conversation with the king in verse 8, he mixes a little bit of truth with a little bit of half-truth and then like, all outright not truth, for he goes off and he begins and gives them the truth. He says, these people are dispersed and scattered, which is absolutely true. But then he goes on and gives them a half-truth and says, their customs are different. And then full out an outright lie where he says, they do not obey the king's laws. And so we see that those that are wicked can take logical arguments that are, have a mixture of inaccuracy and a mixture of truth and they can sway public opinion. And so we see he comes up with this plan where this day of death is chosen. And the day of death is chosen through the casting of lots. And we see now at the end of chapter 3 that the day of death is going to be publicized to the known world. Can you imagine just for a moment the thoughts of all the Jews? As they get word and they see this edict that comes out. That their day of death is this day and it's coming and there's nothing they can do about it. Like it says here at the end of of chapter three that the whole city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I, I, I think that's like an understatement. You know, like the whole city was thrown into confusion. Well, if we knew tomorrow or that that someday down the road, before the end of this year, we would be overthrown by another country and they were going to come in and they were going to kill all the Christians. If you had Christ in your name, if you you are a believer, if you go to church, then you're going to be killed. Many of us would begin asking the questions like, God, where are you? 
I thought you said you'd be here for us. I thought you said that you would show up and that you would save us. And now it's like the end is near. The end is coming. And now we have no hope. But I want to remind us that even though that's going to be the case for many, many people, and that was the case for some, it's always the reality. It's always a smart thing if you're on the path of faithfulness to follow the path that Mordecai is going to take. And I'll give you a little tidbit for next week. The reality is when the world seems like in utter chaos and it seems as though God is gone and fear begins to rise in our lives, the reality is we should always replace our fear with faith. Trust in God in the midst of evil. For God is in or he's in the working, he's using evil to bring about his path and God is above evil. You know, the reality of all of this is is that God did not create evil. God did not, in the seven days of making all of creation, take a day where he created evil. We see in Genesis chapter 1 that everything God made, he declared that it was very, very good. We also see in the New Testament that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So we see that God is not the maker of evil. We see in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We also know in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, that God is not the author of confusion. So God is not the author of confusion. God is not the author of darkness. God is all light, and God is good. So then the question is, where does evil come from then? Who, is, who has created evil? Who has made evil? And I love what John MacArthur says about evil. He says this. He says, it is helpful, I think, to understand that sin is not itself a thing created. Sin is neither substance, being, spirit, nor matter. So it is te- technically not proper to think of sin as something that was created. Sin is simply a lack of moral perfection in a fallen creature. Fallen creatures themselves bear full responsibility for their sins. And all evil in the universe emanates from the sins of fallen creatures. So who has brought about evil? Who is to blame for evil? We are. I remember back in in Romans chapter 1 where it says that those, as God continually hands us over, it says that we invent ways of doing evil. We invent wicked ways. So we are the ones that bring about evil. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says that sin, when sin entered the world, death came along with it. And along with sin came death, pain, disease, stress, exhaustion, calamity. All these bad things were a result of sin entering into the universe. So it's not God's fault that evil things happen. It's not God's fault that the wicked rise. But we can really believe and see that God is completely sovereign over all evil. God uses the evilness of the world to bring about his eternal decrees. God has planned for evil. Has not caught him by surprise. And in no way does evil ever interrupt his eternal plan. God simply permits evil and evil agents to work. Then he overrules evil with his own wise and holy ends. Evil is in the world. But we must trust in the fact that God will overrule evil when it fits into his plan.
But I also want us to be aware today that just as though Haman was on a path towards evilness and wickedness, and we see that he even receives his own destruction in the end, we must understand that there's evil in us. Each one of us are born with a bentness in our hearts towards doing evil. And that may not be packaged as evil, but what is packaged is as this whole idea of survival of the fittest, this preservation of myself. In the end, I care more about my own life than I care about your life. And when it comes down to we boil that all the way down, our decisions are always based on selfishness. Like, we don't wake up in the morning thinking to ourselves, hey, man, I know there are people, in, in, even in the city of Wilmington, that right now did not wake up with a bed. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to spend my day helping people find beds. No, we wake up in the morning not even really thinking about the bed, but we go to work so that we can continue to work so that we can have things for ourselves so that we can be more comfortable. That in and of itself isn't evil, but it can cause us to be selfish. But I want you to see today that even though that there's evil inside of you, God provides an opportunity where he can be ruler over the evil in your own life. And he's provided that way through Jesus Christ. For Jesus came completely God and completely man, lived a perfect life, following all of God's laws and following all God's commands and all of God's direction. And then he went to a cross. And on this cross, he, all of the sin of the world was placed on him. So that through our faith in this person, Jesus Christ. It provides an opportunity for us to be forgiven of our sins, but also allows Christ to be our Lord and allows us to allow God to rule over our own wickedness. Or maybe you're here today and you're just frustrated at the evil that's around us. I encourage you to spend time this afternoon. If you're frustrated at the evil around you, if you're frustrated that you see people around you just advancing and and those that are trying to be faithful aren't, read Psalm 37. For Psalm, Psalm 37 is wonderful because it brings up and against the wicked and the righteous and shows in the end the wicked may flourish for a while, but their end is destruction. Or maybe you're here today and you're just overcome by the reality of evil in the world. Like this week, I've just been completely overwhelmed by what has been taking place in Syria. Like last night I was reading, or I was, uh, Phil and I were talking, he was reading reports of the hundreds of thousands of people right now, that right now, as we are here worshiping in our safety, right now, hundreds of thousands of people are taking their kids and their families, and they're fleeing, trying to get out of Syria so they will not die. Like right now, there's evil in the world. That a leader of another country would gas his own people. That's crazy. That's evil. And I'm overwhelmed by that. Like, that breaks my heart. Like, I want to get on a plane tomorrow, and I want to go to Syria, and I'll take my kids too. And I want to walk up there, and I want to share Jesus Christ with this world leader. Because that's his only hope. So wherever we are today, maybe you're just at a place where you just need to come to grips with the Lord and just say, God, here am I. I don't understand your ways. I don't know why, but I want to trust you. We're going to have just a few moments of individual prayer time. What I want you to do during this time is maybe lift up the people of Syria 
Or maybe there's just something that's like really right smack in your face. Maybe, maybe the world of evilness is not so much out there as it's like a reality of your life today. Or maybe you yourself, through this time, God has just revealed to you that you have evil tendencies. Like there's something in your life right now that, that maybe in the world may not be that bad, but God has just impressed on your heart that what you're doing right now is truly evil. I just want to give you an opportunity and a space for you just to connect with the God of the universe and bring your cares before him.